Thanks, gospel choir. Let's go on the road together. What do you say? That's beautiful. Thanks for leading us in worship tonight. It is good to be with you. I can't tell you how good it is to be with you. I didn't think for a little while I was going to get to be with you. Uh, I was supposed to be here yesterday, and strange white stuff started falling from the sky, and that just didn't happen. Um, I will say it was 78 degrees when I left L.A. this morning, and so I bring you greetings from the sun. Um, uh, But it's good to be here, Uh, and I'm looking forward to this whole weekend uh, together, and thanks for coming out on a cold Wednesday night uh, to gather around the Word and to praise the Lord and and to hear from Him. Um, We got to get one thing straight right off the bat, though, and that is, uh, please call me Scott this weekend. Everybody in my family are ministers. Both of my grandfathers were Nazarene ministers. All my aunts and uncles, my mom and dad, um, my sister and brother-in-law, almost all my cousins. We have one cousin who's a builder and supports all the rest of us. Uh, we have no other marketable skills as a family. But uh, but almost everybody, one way or another, got, figures out how to get called doctor in my family at some point or another. But uh, But one of my favorite stories about that is when I... I was work, trying to finish my Ph.D., and uh, it took three or four years for me to get my dissertation done. I was teaching at your sister college in Oklahoma, Southern Nazarene University, and I finally finished my degree. And so my wife was relieved and threw a big party for me. And uh, so we were having this party, and we invited a bunch of friends over. And my, our oldest son, we have four children, our oldest son was probably about seven or eight at the time. And uh, I hear him talking to a friend, his friend at the party, and his friend says, Caleb, why are we having this party? And Caleb says, well, it's because my dad's a doctor now. He says, but he's not the kind that can help anybody. Uh, so I, I always thought, well, that put that title right in perspective right there. But um, it's great to be with you. And, and tonight, what I would love to do is, if you have a Bible with you or a, a smartphone or an iPad or uh, you're a Bible quizzer and you memorized Mark, uh, turn with me to, to the eighth chapter of Mark to a text that's become incredibly important to me. Um, a text I, I preach from frequently, in part because I need it so much, and a text that has come to deeply shape uh, my own walk with Christ. Uh, two or three years ago, I, I preached through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark, for a lot of the 20th century, was kind of uninteresting to scholars. Uh, Mark gets repeated almost word for word in Matthew and Luke, and so scholars were kind of fascinated with Matthew and Luke. There's a theory that and it's a theory, but there's a theory that says that Matthew and Luke may have had Mark in front of them when they were working on their Gospels. And, but towards the end of the 20th century, scholars got really interested in Mark again, because if, if that's the case, then it, it may be the case that Mark is the earliest written of the four Gospels that we have, and the closest thing to what the Gospel sounded like in the earliest church. And so the last several decades, there's been lots of wonderful work done on Mark. And so I was, I was reading through some of that and thought, I'm going to preach through Mark. And and I realized, you know, Mark gets a bad rap because Mark sometimes uh, is in a hurry. Uh, there's a couple of funny things about Mark. Mark usually, almost every time Jesus does something, it's immediately. Immediately Jesus did this and immediately did this. Mark's in a big hurry for us to get through the gospel. Immediately Jesus do, does these things. And, and almost every time Jesus does something great, we'll see it in the text in just a minute, um, he, he does what's called the messianic secret. He'll say, shh, now don't tell anybody about that. You know, and, and those are some of the distinctives of Mark. And But I have become fascinated with the construction, the way that Mark puts his gospel together. Uh, The first seven or so chapters really take place in Galilee. Jesus is doing predominantly two things. Um, 
He is teaching about the kingdom. He's come to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at work in him. And there are signs that are happening in his ministry that are demonstrations that the kingdom of God is at work in him. But he's also beginning to teach with using parables. And his disciples begin to follow him. He's really subverting their imaginations. Because when he talks about kingdoms, that's common language for them. And, and when they think kingdom, the way kingdoms always come is this. They always come with some conqueror who comes and conquers the people who are there and puts their new kingdom in place. So when he says kingdom, they think conqueror. But Jesus will say things like this. The kingdom of God is like a, a farmer who goes out and sows seed. And the disciples have to think, what? No, Jesus a kingdom is like a warrior who goes out and slays enemies. It's not like a farmer who goes every day hoping somebody will grab a hold of the seed. It's, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. So he, he begins subverting their imaginations. But the first seven chapters really are about healings and blessings and crowds come and follow Jesus and they can't get enough of him. But in chapter 8, where we're going to look tonight, from chapter 8 through chapter 10, Mark gives us this amazing interlude that is book-ended by the healing of two blind men. So a blind man is at the beginning of it, and a blind man at the end of it. And then after that, the rest of the Gospel of Mark takes place in Jerusalem. And we see the crucifixion and the resurrection and, and the disciples abandoning Jesus in the midst of it all. But 8 through 10 is this fascinating section that starts with the healing of a blind man. I want to start there with you tonight. Let's look together at chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch and heal him. Taking the blind man's hand, Jesus led him out of the village. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on the man, he, he asked him, do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees, only they're walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again. He looked with his eyes wide open. His sight was restored, and he could see everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went into the villages near Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? They told him, or he, uh, Peter answered, sorry, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Jesus, and here's the messianic secret. Shh. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about him. But then Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed, and then after three days rise from the dead. Now notice this. He said this quite openly. But Peter took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. And after calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But all of those who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. For me, this is the, such a central text, not just in Mark, but in my own understanding of the gospel. Again, Jesus spends uh, seven chapters going through Galilee, healing people, feeding multitudes. The crowds can't get enough of Jesus. 
But then we get to this place, and, and it starts with this healing of this blind man. And by the way, it is a weird miracle, isn't it? I mean, it's just the weirdest miracle in the Scripture. It's the only place where, that I know of where Jesus got it wrong the first time in some sense. I mean, he, he touches the man. He says, can you see anything? He says, well, it's kind of foggy. I see people, but they look like trees walking, which is a weird thing to say if you've been blind. But nevertheless... He can't quite fully see. And so Jesus touches him again, and now he can fully see. Now here's the, if you're with me tonight, here's the cool part of the miracle. The miracle isn't there to make us go, wow, that is a weird story. Jesus is so cool. How powerful is he? Oh, man. Woo. It's not there just for that. Mark always gives us the miracle stories as signs of something going on in the kingdom. So this weird miracle, I am convinced, and I'm right about this, is connected to the next story. That then Jesus and the disciples are walking along, and he says, Hey guys, who do people say that I am? What's the gossip on the street? And they say, Oh, Jesus, we're so glad that you asked. Your approval ratings are through the roof. The, the polls are in, and 45% say you're Elijah. 32.6% say you're one of the prophets. 18% say you may even be John the Baptist. They love you, Lord. But then the critical question. That's great, but who do you say that I am? Now, Peter gets the right answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Now, notice in the other Gospels, one of the other Gospels, we get this response. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Woo! Give Peter a prize. Not in Mark. In Mark, Jesus goes, great, shh. I have a huge bag of shh in here for you, Peter. Right? Shh. So shh, shh, shh. Don't tell anybody. Now, now, what's interesting is he gets the right answer. But in a minute, we'll find out he, he gets the, the right answer, but it's still the wrong answer. Have you ever done that in class? Where... Where you made the mistake of opening your mouth too soon. I, I mean, you need to talk in class. All of us here are professors want you to talk, kind of. Um, <laughs> no, we do, we do. Um, I, I remember taking a physics class. I, I went to your other sister's school um, in uh, Northwest Nazarene up in Idaho. Um, and I took a sort of physics class for theologians. I'm not sure that's what it was called, but it was kind of a physics class for dummies. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was early in the morning. It was a 7.45 class, and the, the, the professor was probably the most gifted scientist in the university, and he was incredibly frustrated with all of us uh, boneheads. And, um, but I, I'll never forget, uh, most of us had not been doing the reading because uh, we're college students. And, uh, <laughs> and so we were trying to kind of fake our way through this physics class. But what... One of the sections of the book was on, how, was on the conducting of heat and electricity. And, and so he asked that he was trying to lecture on, on how certain materials conduct heat better than others. And he says, come on, guys. I mean, why, for example, does your tongue stick to a metal pole? When, if you were to go out tonight and stick your tongue on a metal pole, which is not a good idea. But if you were to do that, why would your tongue stick to that? But if you go lick the wooden gate outside, it won't stick. And the class acted like it was 7.45 in the morning. <laughs> they just were not answering. And I hadn't really read, I, had, I hadn't, not only had I not really read the chapter, I hadn't read the chapter. 
But suddenly in one of those moments of divine inspiration, it came to me, I think I know the answer to this. So I raised my hand for the first time. It, it actually hurt to raise my hand. I raised my hand for the first time in this class. And the professor had to look at the seating chart. He goes, yes, Mr. Daniels, you, you have an answer? And I said, yeah. Well, I think it's because metal is a good conductor of heat. So when you stick your tongue on the pole, the heat in your tongue is distributed through the pole. And, and your tongue then freezes. The heat goes throughout the pole. But when you stick your tongue on the wooden gate, the heat stays right there. And so you, your tongue melts the ice. He looked at me and said, oh, blessed are you, Scott, son of Theron and Barbara, for, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. No, I was, he was so excited that somebody finally had the right answer. That he said, yes. And then in the next part of the chapter, what does it say? And I, I was like, I, 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 you know, I, I just, I, keeping my hand down for the, rest, for the rest of the semester. I didn't know. Um, before Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter, bang, gets the right answer. Messiah, you're the Christ. Okay, shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> but then Jesus begins to, again, invert their imaginations. You see, here's the guy, deal, guys. Messiah is going to die and suffer. The Messiah is not going to be accepted and lead a huge revolution. Instead, the, the, the Messiah is going to be a suffering servant who is who's rejected even by his own people, who's crucified, beaten, mocked, flogged. He'll die, but on the third day, rise again. And then Mark says this. He told them this quite openly. Tell anybody you want about that part. But Peter grabs him and says, Lord, I'm not sure you heard what I said. I heard you were Messiah. You seem to act like that was the right answer. So let me give you, Lord, a little lecture here on Messiahs. I, I've got a PowerPoint together and... Uh, and lesson one of messiahship is messiahs don't die. Messiahs help other people die, but messiahs don't die. And messiahs certainly aren't rejected. Messiahs come and lead major revolts that change the political shape of world history. I mean, I'm assuming that's the kind of lecture that Peter gives Jesus just so he knows, you know, he wants to make sure Jesus knows what kind of messiah he's supposed to be. But then he gets this major rebuke. Get behind me, Satan, for you're, you've got your mind set on human things. And that's a powerful, a powerful, powerful statement that Peter has been shaped by the human conversation that thinks of messiahs as conquerors, that thinks of leaders as people who, who put their power over others. And it wasn't that Peter just came up with that. It, it's been the way that Peter's life has been formed since he was little, he's been part of conversations around the campfire where people dreamed and hoped for somebody who would come and bring Israel out down from the bottom up to the top. Somebody who would come and overthrow Caesar. Somebody who would undo the oppression. That's been the language that has shaped him. And so he automatically just understands the gospel in that kind of way. So much so that here's the point of the miracle. Peter is just, can see just well enough to say, you're Lord, but he's not cured of his blindness enough spiritually to know what that means. To put it in really common language for you, Peter loves the Jesus of Galilee, the one that blesses and heals and feeds and, and the one who the crowds are following. But now when Jesus begins to talk about discipleship as taking up your cross and following me, not just watching me suffer, but entering into that suffering love that is the redemption of all humankind. When he invites him to enter into that, no, I, you're really confused, Lord, about what this is about. 
for Mark, you can't just serve the Jesus of Galilee. You also have to serve the Jesus of Jerusalem. Because if you don't, you're half blind. And in this case, being half blind spiritually is more dangerous than being fully blind. Now, you and I have not been shaped in the same way that Peter was shaped, but I I think we've been shaped in ways that really distort the gospel for us also and make us half blind. Uh, Let me give you about a four or five minute lecture on one of my favorite uh, sociology books of all time. Um, In the 80s, there was a book written by a guy named Robert Bella, B-E-L-L-A-H, Robert Bella, who is a believer and a sociologist. um, And he put a team together of researchers, and they put together this study of of Americans and why Americans make commitment. And the outcome of that was this major award-winning book called Habits of the Heart that's now in its, like, 12th or 13th edition. But Habits of the Heart is this wonderful book where... Where they go study just average people like you and me. And they ask them, why do you make commitments? And why do you keep them? The ones that you keep, why do you keep them? And the ones that you break, why do you break them? And they just want to understand why it is that Americans make commitment. And at the end of this huge study, what Bell and his team decided is, as they looked at the data, they realized that Americans basically speak four language systems. Now hang with me, this is going to be a little heavy, but it's going to be so good at the end of it. They basically speak four language systems with regards to commitment. Now, that's not languages like French, German, Latin, Italian. It's, it's a kind of way of speaking, a way of seeing, a way of thinking, a kind of logic that people use when they talk about relationships. And here are the first two. What they call utilitarian individualism. Utilitarian individualism. And the second one is called expressive individualism. Thank you, the one person taking notes. Um, Utilitarian, expressive individualism, expressive individualism. You're going to be sad about this. You're going to email me later and want to know what they were. Utilitarian individualism is basically this. I'll commit to something as long as this question gets answered. What am I going to get out of it? What can I use? So I'll make this commitment, but I better be getting something out of it if I'm going to commit myself to it. Utilitarian individualism. Expressive individualism is similar. It's about me. But we realize that there are things we may commit to that we won't get anything out of. But expressive individualism asks this, how am I going to feel? I'll commit to this, but will I feel good about it? Will it make me feel good that I've committed? What Bell and his team found was that those are the two languages that Americans speak almost entirely about relationships. In fact, we really don't speak any other languages but those two. I'll talk about the other two that sort of sneak in. But those are the two languages that we all speak. So when we make commitments, we're asking this question intuitively. What am I going to get out of this? How am I going to feel about it? One of my favorite examples in the book is a guy who's on his second marriage. And so they ask him, tell us about your first marriage. Why, why did you love her? And he lists all the things that she did for him. So he says, well, we met in college. And first of all, she was really, really cute. Um, really good looking, and that did some things for him. Um, I wanted to start a business, and so I wanted to do an MBA program, and she helped me not only get through college, but she helped me get through this graduate program. And then we started a business together, and she was a wonderful partner in business. And then we had children, and she was a great mother to my children. So he listed all these things, but they were all things that she had done for him. 
And they had two or three children, and when the last child graduated from, graduated from high school and went off to college, they decided to downsize. So they sold the house that they'd raised their children in, and the day the house sold, she came to him and said, I'm leaving you. And you don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure out why. Because she said, this relationship's always been about you. And I found somebody for whom it's about me, and I'm gone. So then they ask him, well, what did you love? What do you love about this new wife that you're with? And it's so funny. He doesn't need anything anymore. His business has been successful. His children are raised. He has money. But now the second relationship he talks about totally inexpressive individualism. I, oh, she gets me. Oh, I love the me that I am when I'm with her. She brings out the little boy in me. Right? It's all self-actualization language, right? She, and, and what Bell and his team show is that that's the languages that all of us speak with regards to commitments. But here's the trick they play. After he lists all these things, they say, well, what would you do if, while you're in this first marriage or while you're in, now in the second marriage, what would you do if this person were in an accident, let's say, and could no longer do the things that they, make, that they used to do or make you feel the things that they make you feel? What would you do? That was the whole point of the, the test. And what they found is this, that overwhelmingly Americans, without even thinking, said this, well, I'd stay with them. That's the habit of our heart. That's the title of the book. The habit of our heart says we'd stay with them. But then they'd ask a follow-up question. Why would you stay with, would you stay with them? Here's what they found. The overwhelmingly Americans did this. Well, um, that what was so disturbing to Bell and his team was that they didn't have an answer. That there was no language that Americans had to express why they would stay in this commitment once it didn't work for them or once they didn't feel anything. Except for two groups of people. The third language system was called citizenship. People, mostly who've gone on <laughs> to heaven or elsewhere, um, who, who lived in, through the Great Depression, World War I, World War II, uh, people who who were part of that generation where you just, you did stuff because you committed to it. Because that's what good people do. We've been married 60 years. 18 months of it was good, but we're sticking it out. Right? I've never liked my neighbors, but I bought this house and I'm not moving. Right? Work for one company your whole life. Get a gold watch at the end. You know, just good citizens. Good, hardworking, decent people who, whose yes is yes and whose no is no. Bell and his team said there's a generation who, who many learned to speak that language. Most of them are gone now. That book was written in the 80s, and they were on their way out then. They're almost all gone now. But he said there's this other group of people that speak a language he called covenant. And it's mainly spoken, he said, in religious communities, churches, and synagogues. Where people, and obviously in, in sacred moments, they do this, like weddings, stand up in front of their friends who hopefully brought gifts, and say, I'm going to do this for better, for worse. I mean, think about this language. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. 
So that you stand up in front of all these people, usually when you're too young to know any better, and you say, we have no idea where this is going to go. But we're covenanting our lives to each other. But Bella said that same kind of language then pervades the way that we think about commitments, so that this commitment is covenantal. I don't know if I'll always get something out of it that I want. And I don't know if I'll always feel something, but I am covenanted into this. Now, obviously, the, the diagnosis of the book for Bella was that if America doesn't learn to speak those last two languages, we're in real trouble. Because communities can't sustain themselves very long if the only languages you speak are languages of individualism. But in a footnote, Bella, who's a believer, said, one of the things that concerns me as a believer, however... I've heard him speak on this, is that the last group of people in America who speak the language of covenant, the church, are themselves beginning to abandon that language for the languages of utilitarian and expressive individualism. Now, it was really profound, so let me say it again. That the last place that speaks the language of covenant, the church, is abandoning that language for the languages of utilitarian and expressive individualism. In other words, come to Jesus, because this is what you'll get. Come to Jesus, because this is what you'll feel if you do. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I think Jesus is the Jesus of Galilee, who heals the sick, who blesses our lives, who feeds the multitude, a Jesus who wants you to thrive and be blessed and live the life that he created you to live. I am convinced of that. So that there is so much of us that wants to follow Jesus. And when he says, who do people say that I am? And we say, oh man, Lord, I'm glad you asked that question. Some say you're a healer. Some say you're a blesser. Some say you are a father. Some say you are this and that. I mean, We can give you the whole list of what people say that you are. But here's the problem. (laughs) Much like Peter, who was shaped to think of Messiah solely in terms of politics. I'm convinced that you and I have been shaped to think of faith solely in terms of individualism. And so when we say that, Jesus goes, that's great. Shh. Don't tell anybody. Well, you can tell a few people, but but here's what you also need to tell them. If you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. Think about this covenant language. For if you want to find your life, you'll lose your life. But if you will lose your life, this is not utilitarian, utilitarian or expressive individualism language. If you will lose your life for my sake, for the sake of the kingdom, you will find it. Now, I want you to notice something. If you have Mark still open, Mark is a genius. So that was chapter 8 when Jesus says this. In chapter, notice in chapter 9, there's a few things that happen. But then in chapter 9, Jesus begins to talk about this again. Chapter 9, um, this is verse 30. From there, Jesus and his followers went through Galilee, but he didn't want anyone to know it. This was because he was teaching his disciples, the Son of Man will be delivered into human hands. They will kill him three days after he is killed. He'll rise up. But notice this, they didn't understand this kind of talk. 
They're afraid to ask him. But this is so comical. The very next verse. They entered Capernaum. When they had come into a house, he asked them, what were you arguing about during the journey? They didn't respond since on the way they had been debating with each other about who was the greatest. Now, only Pastor Kevin laughed because the rest of you aren't very spiritual. But that is, this is funny stuff. This is as funny as the Bible gets right here. Jesus, the first time, says, let me talk to you about Messiah, okay? So before you go out and start talking about Messiah, here, shh, let me talk to you about Messiah. Messiah is not what you expect. Messiah is not somebody who is just the sort of spiritual genie in your life who gives you everything you want. By the way, most sociologists say your generation are basically moralistic, therapeutic deists. Which means God just wants you to be nice, he wants you to be happy, and he shows up when you need him. Very much like a genie. But he says, shh, if you're thinking about Messiah that way, please don't go tell anybody. But let me talk to you about what life of Messiah is like, what kingdom of life is like. And Peter rebukes him. Second time he does it, the very next moment, the disciples are fighting about who's the greatest. They're such blockheads. <laughs> and now chapter 10. I mean, seriously, this is so funny. In chapter 10, Jesus talks to them about it again. This time it's uh, verse 32. Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem with Jesus in the lead. The disciples were amazed while the others following behind him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he, he told them what was about to happen to him. Look, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the legal experts. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will ridicule him, spit on him, torture him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise up. Are you ready? James and John, Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Hurdy, hurdy, her. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. By the way, you should underline that sentence. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They said, well, allow one of us to sit on your right hand and the other on your left when you enter your glory. Jesus replied, oh, I'm glad I'm leaving soon. I... <laughs> You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink and receive the baptism I receive? We can, they answered. Do you see? It's so fascinating. Three times in these chapters, Jesus wants to talk to them about how to understand what the nature of the kingdom of God is. And every time they get it wrong. Because they've been shaped by a language that keeps them from being able to understand what it means to be part of this kingdom. He wants to talk to them about suffering, but they automatically go to conquest. He wants to talk to us about what it means to give up our lives in covenant to him, but we automatically go to the languages of individualism. We are as blind, if not more so, than the disciples. But notice, I said this whole section is bookended by blind men. The very next passage at the end of chapter 10 is this other blind man. can't read the numbers very well. 46. Jesus and his followers came into Jericho. As Jesus was leaving Jericho together with his disciples and a sizable crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, Timaeus' son, was sitting beside the road. 
When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was there, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, show me mercy. Many scolded him, telling him to be quiet, but he shouted even louder, son of David, show me mercy. And Jesus stopped and said, call him forward. They called the blind man. Be encouraged. Get up. He's calling you. Throwing his coat to the side, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And then notice this. The question in verse 51 is the same as the question in verse 36. that Jesus asked James and John. Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, here's the blind man's response. Teacher, I want to see. As we start this weekend together, maybe the most important thing I could say to you is right here at the beginning. I I so desperately want you to know Christ. I want you to know the Christ of Galilee, who knows your name, who loves you, who wants the very best for you, who, who is the healer of our diseases, who is the mender of our broken hearts, who who always finds that one at the margins and goes and blesses and heals. But in many ways, I came this week because I want you to know that part of Jesus, but I really came this week because I want you to know the Jesus of Jerusalem. The one who says, if that's all you know about me and if that's all you want out of this, shh. For your half-blindness is in some ways more dangerous to the kingdom than if you weren't, you couldn't see at all. For if you want to be my disciple, here's what you have to do. You have to take up your cross and follow me. When I was, um, when I was in high school, I really wanted to do anything except be a minister. Everybody in my family did that. Um, it wasn't that I didn't like the church. I deeply loved the church, and I, I deeply loved my family. I just thought somebody should do something different than that. I love sports. Um, I know you could tell as soon as you saw me that I was a great athlete. Uh, that wasn't a joke. Uh, no, I was a terrible athlete, but I, um, but I liked good athletes, and, and I, I loved sports. My... I'm a real geek, and this is more confession than you need. But, but you know, we didn't have laptops and things when I was a teenager. And so I grew up in Seattle, and, and I loved especially the, the Seattle Mariners. They were a new team, and they were terrible. And now they're an old team, and they're terrible. Um, but I would, I would get the morning paper every morning because um, you didn't have ESPN.com to download box scores and things. I'd get the morning paper every morning and get this, the Mariner box score, and I would keep their season statistics on yellow legal pads, and I would update them every day. And I was a big Seattle Sonic fan. They're now the Oklahoma City Thunder. There is no God. Um, no. no, there is. He just doesn't care about basketball. Uh, <laughs> But the Seattle Sonics, I was this huge Seattle Sonic fan, and, and I would do the same thing with them. And I know I was geeky, but I had all these yellow legal pads with all their stats. And, and as a 7th and 8th grader, I would just keep piles and piles of all these things. And 
And there was a, a basketball coach from Seattle Pacific University who lived across the street from us and was good friends with my mom and dad and knew how much I loved sports. And so as an eighth grader, he, uh, he offered me a job that I, I could be the statistician for the radio broadcast for their basketball games. And so it was so fun, man, to sit there and keep the stats during the game. And, you know, when the radio announcer would say, oh, that's, that's Bobby Skolton who just scored. And I would write down, you know, six points. He's got six points. He's three for five. He's shooting 60%. You know, that's kind of fun. By the time I was a ninth grader, I could go in the locker room at halftime. And when I come out, he would interview me before the second half. He'd say, our statistician, Scott Daniels, is here to give us an update. He's been in the locker room. What are the Falcons going to do in the second half? And this was before the change. And so I'd say, well, it's going to be really good. You know, uh, it's gonna, they're going to focus on defense. And anyway, so. But man, I, I, just, I was so cool. It was so cool. I, it's what I wanted to do. And my junior year of high school, uh, the university there offered me a journalism scholarship for the following year, two years from then. And, and I just had it all mapped out. And I went to a youth event in between my junior and senior year of, of high school. Some of you may have been to a, a Nazarene Youth Congress. Uh, it was called World Youth Congress that year. We were with a bunch of Nazarene teens in Mexico, and I sat near the front one night. And, and I'll forget, the, the speaker was speaking out of John chapter 12, a text where Jesus says this, Where I am, there my servant will be also. And I don't, I've heard a lot of sermons in my life. I don't remember very many, but I remember this one. He said, you know, most of us get that order wrong. Jesus says, where I am, there my servant will be also. He said, most of us do this. Where we are, there God, come show up, okay? This is where I'm going, God. Bless it, all right? And he, he said a line that I've repeated over and over hundreds of times over the years. He said, we treat, we treat Jesus like a great condiment. Like, like he's mustard. Everything goes better with Jesus sprinkled on top. And he said, but that's not discipleship. That's us adding Jesus in. Discipleship is taking up our cross and following Jesus. It's where he is. That's where we show up. And I was deeply convicted. And I realized that's, that's the life I was living. And so as a 17-year-old, I came and said, God, I, I, I have got this all out of order. Teach me. Teach me not just how to follow you for what I want out of it, but teach me how to follow you and to lose my life for the sake of your kingdom. It was weird. I I left that night knowing basically three things that I was going to try to get the order right. (laughs) But I left knowing, uh, you're going to want me to go into ministry, aren't you? (laughs) I have to tell you, I, I can't be more thankful that, I've, that that's the direction God led me. But my son and I were at a Dodger game this summer, and we were going up the escalator. And Vin Scully, are you, you know the legend, uh, the Dodgers broadcaster, he was going up the other escalator. And my son hit me, he goes, that's Vin Scully. I said, yes, I know. We're not worthy, we're not worthy. But as Vin and a couple of the other broadcasters headed towards the booth, my son looked at me, who's heard this story many times, and said, Dad, that could have been you. Which was a nice compliment, because it probably couldn't have been me. But it, nevertheless, uh, but I said to him, you know, no, I have absolutely no regrets. No regrets. Um, but I also knew that I was supposed to turn down that scholarship and go to this 
Northwest Nazarene College, the school I'd promised I would never go to because it's in Idaho. Did I tell you that part already? Uh, it's in Idaho. But I went there, and, and because I, I think there have been lots of schools that have been good, but for me, it was, it was the step of saying, God, I'm willing to go where you want me to go rather than where I've planned out and asked you to add in. I say that to you tonight because that was a lot. That was 30 years ago. And for the last 30 years, over and over again, there have been lots of times where I've had to say, I'm getting the order wrong, aren't I, God? Um, I'm doing it again, aren't I? I'm, I'm building my life and adding you in rather than discovering what it means to follow you and to go where you want me to go. If you don't hear anything else this week, hear this. The Jesus of Galilee is great. But if that's all you know, then you haven't entered into the fullness of a covenantal relationship with Christ. A willingness to say, I'll take up my cross, Lord, and follow you. I'll, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll, I'll live the way you want me to live. I'll... I'll stop putting the cart before the horse. I'll I'll quit treating you as just an addition to life. I'll make you the very center of it all. I'd love for us, I know it's just a little after eight, and uh, and it's cold outside. Did you notice that? Um, But I'd love for us to take maybe an opportunity to pray. Jake, I don't know if you can come play something. I have faith in you. <laughs> yeah. Jake's going to lead us in something. And I would love uh, just to take just a couple of moments to pray with you. Um, in our tradition, we have what we call altars. Um, they're just safe places. I, I don't know that you have to go to one for life to be different. But in this tradition, we, we realized that sometimes it's too easy to hear good stuff and then just kind of walk away from that. That sometimes we know that God has moved towards us and sometimes we just need to respond and move towards him. And, and you may need to do that. I don't know. But if you'd like to come and pray tonight, I'll give you a chance to do that. This is a great old song, right? I have decided to follow Jesus. Let's sing it together. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. One of the verses is uh, the world behind me, the cross before me. Let's sing that verse. And again, if if you'd like to come tonight, I might invite you to do that. Let's sing it again. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. 
the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. We have decided, we have decided to follow Jesus. We have decided to follow Jesus. We have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Would you stand with me? The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Father, thanks for your love. Uh, Thanks for the invitation to be part of your kingdom, uh, for the invitation to discover your purposes for our life, for the invitation to enter into a kingdom that is so different than what anybody in the world ever expects. The world always expects transformation through power, not through service. The world always expects people to look out for their own interests, not to discover what it means to find life by by giving life away. I pray for uh, this week together. Uh, bless us each time we gather around your word. Uh, thanks for safe travel today. And I, I just pray, God, that this weekend would be really special and wouldn't be about any of us. It would be about you. And uh, so we give you permission to speak to us and mess with our hearts a bit this week. Thanks uh, for this church, for the history of this church, for the impact of this church in the community. May this week be an opportunity to imagine anew uh, your mission into this place. Such a great city, such broken people. And thanks especially for these students and for this great college. Thanks for its leadership and uh, for all of the all of the great stuff that happens in classrooms and dormitories and cafeterias and hallways. And I pray your blessing upon this week that you would speak to students about what you want them to do with their life and the way that you want to use them. Have mercy on us for the ways that we we treat you as an add-on into our life. Help us discover what it means to take up our cross and to follow you. To learn a language of covenant. Um, 
we have a word uh, that we use a lot around here and in our kind of tradition that that word is sanctification our prayer is that that you would do what that word means in our lives that you would you would take every single part of it and make it yours that you would purify our hearts and mold us to your purposes and so may this benediction be ours tonight and now may the God of peace himself may he sanctify us through and through may our whole spirit, soul and body be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and he who called us to take up our cross and to follow him he who called us, he is faithful and he will finish his work in us And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. See you tomorrow night. Have a great night.